Most of you probably know we're in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of the five books of wisdom that's found in the Old Testament. And so today we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be helpful to look at this very famous passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The Old Testament wisdom literature is designed to help you to know how to live before God and mankind. So how do I just live this life horizontally? What's the wisest way to deal with situations with myself? And so the the wisdom literature comes in and gives us some handles on how we're supposed to live before God and before man. And we're going to read these first 13 verses. So let's stand together as we read God's God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in the heart in the man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. You may be seated and take a few moments to reflect together on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the uh, kindergarten through the second grade through the back door.
Everyone here has a relationship with time. Since we all live in the northern hemisphere, yesterday was a very special moment in time for us. You know what that was? The, the summer solstice. So that precisely at 6.51 a.m. yesterday morning was the beginning of what we call summer. Yesterday was the longest day, meaning daylight, of the year. And if you're a teacher or a student, uh, the next eight weeks, time flies by. Does it not? You just want to hold on to these eight weeks that go by so quickly. Some people here have a very tight relationship with time. They ne- never leave the house without a timepiece strapped to their bodies. They're always very aware of time. They're always on time, or on time for them as being five minutes early. And by the providence of God, those people have married the other people who have a different relationship with time. Let's say a more casual relationship with time. They don't strap a timepiece to their body when they leave. They're mostly unaware of exactly what time it is. And just being there generally in any amount of time is on time for them. Just somewhere within a 20-minute window is the same thing. And, of course, that provides opportunities for other parts of the Bible about marriage and other things that we can talk about, but we'll skip today. Some, some people describe their relationship with time by using the word season. This is a busy season in my life. This is a season of a lot of uncertainty. Cultures have different views of time. Every Sunday morning, I strap my timepiece to my wrist. But we come here at a particular time. We, we begin on time. Every, every time we finish the worship practice, I say, okay, let's all look at our watch and say what time it is. Because we all want to start at 1030. But on the occasions that I've had to preach in Haiti or Kenya, they're not as worried about time. I'll say, hey, what time does your church start? And they'll say, kind of with a curious look, like, well, in the morning. And I'll be like, okay. Just, you know, whenever the music starts is sort of when it starts. And if you come within the first half hour or 45 minutes of the music starts, then you're on time. Just people just sort of begin to wander in. They have a a much more focus of relationships than than time being a a master for them. And and when you're in that culture, you do get used to that. That's a a nice part of their culture. Um, For a few, you might have difficulties with time. Life has created some challenges and you're worried about how quickly Time goes by. And so you have a kind of fearful relationship with time. You may resonate with the lyrics from Paul Simon's song. Through the corridors of sleep, past shadows, dark and deep. My mind races, dances and leaps in confusion. I don't know what is real. I can't touch what I feel. I hide behind the shield of my illusion. So I'll continue to continue to pretend that my life will never end. And flowers never bend with the rainfall. So we all have some kind of relationship with time. And whatever your relationship is, Koheleth or the preacher or the teacher 
of this great book of Ecclesiastes, he wants you to look at time and take it seriously. And he specifically wants to do this here in chapter 3. In chapter 3, what we have is probably the most famous biblical poem. The one that, that most people know, written 3,000 years ago. And, and uh, you might know that uh, 3,000 years later, uh, the Birds, the pop group in 1965, makes this very famous poem a popular song. You probably have to be in your late 50s or 60s to remember that song. Like, I'm not there. I don't remember it. I've seen it on YouTube and my parents talked about it. But um, you, you know this song, you know, you know this, you don't have to you just grew up in a culture. You know, these words are familiar words for us. And the text this morning breaks pretty quickly, pretty easily into three different parts. First, verses two through eight, uh, the, the preacher talks about time, our time. Then 9, 10, and 11, he talks about eternity. And in the last two verses, he talks about how, do, how should we live in light of these two things. Now that I've talked about your time, and then I've talked about eternity or God's time, how do we live? How do we live wisely? How do we live with skill in our time? So let's look at those three in that order. The poem consists of 14, if you're, if you're a biblical scholar, of what's called merisms, M-E-R-I-S-M, a merism. It's a, it's a figure of speech. It's a way of taking two extremes or two poles or two ends of something and to say it and mean, I mean, that and everything in between. In other words, in Genesis 1-1, when the writer, probably Moses, says, in the beginning God created, what? The heavens and the earth. He's not saying he just created the heavens and then he just created the earth. It's a merism. It's a way of saying, and God created, he created everything. Everything that is created, he has created it. And the writer has just taken these, this phrase, heaven and earth, to say that for us. He's created everything. And so the preacher here, and you see in these verses, he has 14 beautifully balanced lines. And, and it's, he's meaning, meaning to describe the, the tides of human time, the tides of our experience. He, it, when you get to the end, you're, you're meant to say, he's covered everything about my life, everything that I, I could or would experience, every emotion. The very first and probably the most important topic he covers is life and death. There is a, a time to be born and a time to die. Some of you know Dee Dee Vincent. She works for us in the office and uh, her, her oldest son and his wife have been in this process of adoption. And they've gotten to a point where they've gotten matched up with somebody and the person when they deliver, uh, they, they will go to the hospital and they'll take that baby home and it'll be their, their child. And so we've been sort of waiting for that moment to happen at 428 this morning. I get a text from Dee, which I'm going to have to talk to her a little bit about 428. Uh, but, hey, I'm on my way to the hospital in Greensboro. And I texted her back today. It's, it's a time to be born. This is the day. It's there's a moment in time. There's a moment for uh, that birth. There's a, a moment for death. It's 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 the way God has structured it. Psalm 139, 
For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Job 14.5 Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. See, God establishes the boundaries right out, right out of the gate in this poem the the writer, the, the preacher is trying to say from womb to tomb, God establishes the boundaries of our timeline. Time but remember, it's a merism. It's a figure of speech. It's not just saying God has established the very first day of your life, Paul, and also he established the very last day of your life. He's saying he's established every day of your life. He's in control of every day of your life, not just the first and the last, but the first, the last and every day in between. God is completely in control. And so the purpose of this opening line is to immediately begin to to detoxify us from the feeling that we're in control of our lives. That somehow we're ultimately the standard. We're the ones that's controlling things. We're manipulating everything to get our, jo- our will done. The, the writer is trying to say, no, <laughs> you're not doing that. You have such little control. And I'm right out of the gate saying, you have no control of the first day of your life. You have no control of the last day of your life. And actually, God's in control of every day in between. There's a time to be born. There's a a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what has been planted. Now, a few gardeners will appreciate this. And since I like that somewhat, this may be a helpful illustration. One of my favorite things to do is in March or April to go to Farmer Supply. You know where that is over on Oleander? And in the back part or sort of the side part, they have this covered area. And they have all their vegetables in little containers. You know what I'm talking about? Those containers of tomatoes and squash and zucchini and eggplant and all that stuff. And I like to just go and walk up and down the aisles. And look at all these tiny little plants who are just saying, pick me, pick me. Plant me in your garden. It's time to plant. It's it's time. And just that feeling of all this potential, all, all uh, all the things that could be happening. I just want to grab them all. And I'm all, almost always grab too many, and then I feel badly. I throw some of them away. Pick me, pick me, and they go over my fence, and I'm like, "Sorry, didn't get chosen." But there, there's a time to plant. But you know, you you plant April the first or April the fifteenth, whatever your day is. Three, four months later, what time is it? It's time to pluck up. The plant is is spent. It's it's produced all that it can, and it's it's, it's a time to move on. It's not true just about plants. It's about our lives, is it not? Whether it's a job or geography. There's a time to to start something. There's a time to be planted in that situation. And then there's a time to pluck up. There's a time to to move on. Many of you know Noah and Carrie Furr. I miss seeing them sitting over here and miss Noah's hands up in the air at the end. They came to me a few weeks ago and said, they didn't say this. But it's a time to pluck up. Hey, Paul, this was our last Sunday. I mean, they came here as college students. They met. They got married. They had jobs. They were planted in the church, planted in the community. But, but the season was over. 
And it, and it seemed to come to such a quick conclusion. I mean, it seemed like it was never going to happen. And then suddenly they're saying, hey, this is our last Sunday. It's time for us to pluck up. And we're going to pluck up from Wilmington, from our job, from our geography. And we're going to go be planted in Chapel Hill for the next few years. So there's a time to plant. There's a, a time to pluck up what's been planted. And you look in verse 4. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. There's a time for every human emotion. And you see the, the extremes, do you not, on display in the World Cup. I mean, I don't know how many are World Cup fans, but you see that. They're, we're going to win chant going in. Everybody's pouring. Everybody's got, everyone's dancing. Everybody's got their costumes on. And you, you want to pay attention to the game, but then they show you all the people in the crowd, and they're cheering for their team. But what happens is somebody loses. And when they lose, it's a time for mourning. It's a time for weeping. You'd think they'd lost their child. They lost the soccer game. And if you won, dancing, it's time to dance. We won. We're the best. We're number one today. So there's a time for every human emotion. There's a time to embrace, verse 5, and a time to refrain from embracing. This is probably the most popular Verse with every dad with a daughter of dating age. Every wise dad strategically posts the second half of the verse on the front door of his house. It's a time to refrain from embracing. So you just, you know, you strategically just say we're we're trying to put the word of God over the doorpost of our house. And just how did we pick this verse today as you come to visit my daughter? It's a time to refrain from embracing. Verse 6, there's a, a time to seek and a time to lose. Maybe some of you don't want to know the amount of time you've spent seeking things that other people have lost. Keys, wallets, shoes, remote controls. Somebody in your house is the person who loses stuff. Hey, honey, did you see? No, those aren't my keys. Those aren't, I didn't wear your shoes. I didn't. You know, and you spend so much time seeking after things that have been lost or there's a time to keep silent and a time to speak. There's probably uh, as much wisdom literature written about this particular topic as almost any other topic. There's a lot of wisdom literature written on the topic of of verbal self-control. Let me give you some examples. Proverbs ten nineteen: When words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. Proverbs thirteen three: He who guards his lips guards his life. But he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. See, there's there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent, and it takes a great deal of wisdom to know which one is the time. And then sort of to close it up, there's a time for war and a time for peace. Sometimes in the human experience, what washes ashore is a, is a time for war. Sometimes what washes ashore is a time for peace. If you watch the news at all, you just wonder, when is the tide going to come in for the Middle East to, to be a time for peace? I mean, whatever your political persuasion, whatever your thoughts, 
it's at least terribly confusing as to know how do you try to wash in peace in this culture? What, what kind of responsibility do we have? Should, should we be partaking in it? It's certainly a time to pray for our leaders who have to make those kinds of decisions. And you notice when the preacher finally puts his artistic pen down, and he rereads his poem of these 14 beautifully balanced lines describing this tide of human experience, he's, he's left with a question. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? He writes his poem and then he kind of rereads it and says, so after it's all said and done, is there anything worthwhile? I mean, sure, the poem beautifully describes this broad range of human emotion, but in the end, does it matter? Or or are we just living out our lives in some sort of fatalistic, cyclical universe? The more cynical reader of the poem would say something like this. Uh, What you have here are 28 statements, 14 pluses and 14 minuses. And when you get to the end, it's a zero. When you slide down the slope of the question mark in verse 9, you're left wondering, do I matter? Am I a zero? Sure, I I wash up in the shore of time. I I stretch out and try to make my mark. But generations come and generations go and I quickly recede. And and I'm not ever going to be remembered. So, So am I just a zero? Is life just a zero? Am I just sort of this rat on a wheel? And I work and work and work. But in the end, it really doesn't add up to anything. The actress Lily Tomlin has a one-act play where she plays Trudy, the bag lady. And at one point in this opening monologue, she kind of looks out into space and she says this, I wonder about my place in the vast scheme of things. I wonder about my place in the vast scheme of things. And then she pauses and then she asks this question, I wonder if there is a vast scheme of things. See, it's the same kind of question that we're left with at the end of the poem. Sure, it's a beautifully written poem, beautiful symmetrical lines, beautiful mirrorisms, beautiful description of human experience and human emotion. But at the end, is it just a zero? Am I just a zero? Does it matter? Is there a vast scheme of things? And in the next section, the preacher answers this question. And we learn three very important things in these verses, 10 through 12, about how to live with skill in this world before God and man. So let's look at those. Verse 10. He asks the question in verse 9. And he begins his answer. Verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy busy with. What's the key phrase here? You're reading along, you've read the poem, you you understand his question, verse 9, the beginning of his answer, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What's, What's the key phrase? What's the four words that unlock us from being a rat on a wheel? What's the phrase that helps us conclude that we just don't add up to zero? Answer? That God has given. 
You see, the tides of time, the whole range of a human experience and emotion are gifts of God. Let me just say that one more time. The entire range of your experience and your emotions, every day of your life from beginning to end, without exception, every day is, every experience is, every emotion is a gift of God. See, they're God-given These things haven't just happened by chance. We're not some product of survival of the fittest. We're we're not living out our lives in this endless spin cycle. No, God has put eternity into our hearts. And we know there must be some kind of meaning, some kind of purpose beyond the tideline. And, And the preacher reminds us of this critical truth that God has personally ordered and ordained all the seasons of our lives. That makes such a big difference. And whatever God does, verse 14, endures forever. So the beginning of his answer is, yes, there is a vast scheme of things. And because God has ordained every moment in the vast scheme of things, because he's involved, he's infused it with incredible meaning and eternal value. Number one. Number two, the second thing we learn, God has made everything beautiful in his time. Verse 11. Remember last week in chapter two, we talked about the preacher who went on the let the good times roll tour. Remember that? And so what he decided to do, if you look back in chapter two, verse nine, this is what he decided to do. So I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes, this was his motto for a season of time, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. That was his motto. That's the let the good times roll tour. And we asked the question at the end of this tour, what was the final destination? Answer, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and behold, it was vanity. Later on, he talks about hatred and his life being in despair. See, he got on the tour bus, the let the good times roll tour bus, to do whatever his heart wanted to, to grab hold of whatever his eyes saw that he wanted, and to say, this has got to be life. And when he gets off, when he gets to the final termination, he, he walks out and says, it's vanity, it's, it's hatred, it's despair. But the preacher in chapter 3, verse 11, informs us that in the end, when you add it all up, The events of this world don't terminate on vanity. They terminate on beauty. God has made everything beautiful in his time. And so the termination point, whether we can see it right now or not, the termination point is going towards beauty, not vanity. That's the second thing that we learn. And you get a don't you get a just a hint of Romans 828 here? We know, we, we know in all things, God is working together. He's working towards good. He's working towards beauty 
for all people who who love him. The termination point, again, whether we can see it or not, isn't vanity, isn't is beauty. It's not rat on the wheel. It's not fatalism. It's not the endless spin cycle. There's some purpose. There's some meaning in every event, every emotion of our lives. Number three. Now, when I get to this point, when I studied this week, I thought, okay, we've gotten the, the, the poem down. It's about time. It's about our time, how we experience time. And then he asked this sort of pivoting question, verse 9. Well, when I look at human time, it, it just seems like a zero. So I'm not sure it really matters. And then he tries to begin to answer that, or he does begin to answer that in verse 10 and 11. But then I get to this point and I think, okay, so I understand the poem. I'm thankful that my life isn't a zero. I'm thankful that the termination point is beauty and not vanity. And this is how my mind thinks. But so much of the present time doesn't look beautiful. So great, God's infused our lives with meaning and the termination point is beauty. But so much of life just doesn't look very beautiful or death, breakdown, weeping and mourning. They seem to cast such longer shadows than laughter and love. They seem to stay around longer. They seem to have more scars. They create more dents that creates limping in the life in some way. And when I look at death and when I look at breaking down and when I look at weeping and when I look at war, it just doesn't always make much sense to me. And when I get into these difficult or dark days or human emotions, it creates uncertainty. And when I get uncertain, I become suspicious. And when I become suspicious, I become suspicious about God. And whether he's really good and really in control. Now, maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way. So you're just listening to me. But my guess is a lot of you have gotten into those dark places. And it's created some kind of uncertainty. And you've grown suspicious And you've got to cast that suspicion somewhere. And many times you you throw it out to God to say, where are you? What are you doing? This just doesn't make any sense. So much could be said, but let's just stick to the answer the preacher provides in verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, it's very important yet, he, mankind, He cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. He has put eternity into my heart. I'm longing for some meaning greater than this world. And I can find that meaning in God, but yet I can't fathom what he's doing from beginning to end. He says the same thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I saw saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend it. You know what no one in the Hebrew means? No one. That's what it means. No one can comprehend it. When you look at what God's doing, you just can't possibly fathom it. You can't comprehend it. And he goes on, despite all of man's efforts to search it out, man can't discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims that he knows, I know what God is doing. 
he can't really comprehend it. Ecclesiastes 8.17. So the preacher answers my uncertainty. He answers my suspicions of God and his goodness in this way. This is how I might paraphrase it. If Koheleth was talking to me. Paul, you, you can't possibly fathom what God is up to. When I get into those dark places, when I get into uncertainty that leads to suspicion, that leads to questions about God and his goodness, the preacher comes in and says, Paul, let's start make you the starting point and let's just understand you can't possibly understand all that God is doing. You don't have the capacity to understand what he's doing from beginning to end. Second, Paul, if, if you feel the need to be suspicious... If you feel the need to be suspicious about how God is bringing everything to a conclusion, if you feel, Paul, if you feel the need to be suspicious about how God's going to make everything beautiful in his time, then direct your suspicion towards you, not God. Be suspicious that you couldn't possibly understand it, not be suspicious that God is good or not. He's trying to help reorient my thinking away from myself as if the world can't move on unless I understand what's going on. I've got to understand. And God says, no, you don't. You don't have to understand. And you don't have the capacity to possibly comprehend all that God is doing. So if you grow suspicious, just let all that suspicion be towards you to say, okay, I'm a created being. Later in Ecclesiastes, he says, I'm a beast. I can't possibly understand what an eternal being is up to from beginning to end. Understand, Paul, that God has the ability to make even the worst situation terminate in beauty. How do we know that? The worst possible situation terminated in beauty. And if you and I would have been there, we would have said, this is a disaster. Why in the world did it work out like this? This wasn't in any way what we had planned. And why do we know that? Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. Remember, Jesus comes up to these disciples what are you talking about? And they begin to talk about Jesus and, and they, they have this great phrase. We had hoped Oh, I wonder how many times you've been in that place. You, you just were so sure what God was doing. You knew exactly the mind of God. And then it turned out totally different. And you say, but I had hoped in this. I just knew that's what God wanted to do. And, I, and, and Jesus looks at him. You remember his first phrase. I, I, I wish I could get a, a tone here. Which Luke had said, and his tone was. Remember what he says? He looks at these two men and he says, oh, foolish men. I mean, I don't know if he throws his hands up in the air. I don't know what he does. But the creator of all that is the alpha and the omega is looking at these two men who said we had a plan. We knew exactly how it was going to turn out and it didn't turn out. And God says, oh, foolish, so foolish. You can't possibly understand what God is doing from beginning to end. And then beginning in that moment of time, he takes those two men who are in the worst moment of time and begins to break open a beautiful flower 
and say, this thing has been happening from beginning to end. My coming, my death, my resurrection, and my salvation for the whole world. And see, if we had stuck to your plan, if we had stuck to your knowledge, we'd be all stuck. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus, in his very first sermon, he quotes from Isaiah 61. He goes into the pulpit, so to speak, and he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He's quoting Isaiah, who's saying, This is what this person is going to do when he comes. And this is what he says to bind up what's been broken down. To comfort those who mourn. To exchange beauty for ashes. Gladness for mourning. Praise for despair. You see, all the negatives in Ecclesiastes 3, one day will be exchanged for beauty. God will make everything beautiful in His time. Amen? Now let me close with two points of application. How, now, now that we have a sense of our time, the tides of time, we get some sense of eternity. We get sort of brought up to say, okay, let's, let's remember, you're not God. You don't know everything. You're not in control of everything. How, how then should this help us live? And there could be ten applications here. Let me just mention two. One, it should generate an enormous amount of humility. When you, when you read this, an enormous amount of humility should just flood into your heart because God has established every season, established a season for every matter under heaven, and you and I don't control any of those seasons. He has established them. He's in absolute control. And so we can humbly submit to Him. He's God, and we are not. Second, we can't possibly fathom, especially in difficult times, what God's doing from beginning to end. So all the suspicion that we might have towards God should take a U-turn towards us and cause humility. I was sitting recently with a guy after one of the Iron Leadership meetings, this lead, uh, men who come together on Friday mornings. And he said, hey, after the meeting, can we have a meeting? And I knew he wanted to talk about this fork in the road of where he was in his life. Some with his family, some with his career. And he just needed somebody to kind of listen, just listen and maybe bounce some ideas back and forth. So we met for about 45 minutes in my office one Friday morning. And he laid out the situation. And after he laid it out, here's the first thing I said. I don't know. I don't know what God could possibly be up to. There's a million different things he could be doing here. So, so before I give you any information, the first and most important information you need to hear from me is I don't know. Now, I think that was really discouraging for him for a moment. But I don't know. I don't, I'm not God. I can help navigate in some ways, but God might be up to thousands of things and I would be completely blind to them. That's very possible. And I just wanted to set the table to make him aware. I don't know. But let's pray together. Let's see if we can understand the mind of God. Now, if he had come to me when I was 30, 
And if he had come to me when he was tw- when I was 21, before he had finished laying out his plan, I could have finished the plan for him and given him the answer. It would have been a much easier conversation. But praise the Lord, I have matured. And I say the words, I don't know, a lot more at 51 than I ever did at 31. See, when you mature, you begin to say, <laughs> there are a lot of things I knew for sure and haven't happened now and aren't going to happen. There are a lot of things that I thought, this must be the will of God. This has got to be it. I'm absolutely, positively sure. And it never happened and it never will happen. And so I backed up and I said, you know what? I don't know. God's God and I'm not God. I'm sure about that. And so it creates an enormous amount of humility to say, I don't know what the season is, but I can pray with you. I can think with you. But in the end, only God knows what that is. Second thing it creates or should generate is joy. Look at verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful. Joyful because we're not living our lives out in some random series of events. We're living our life out under a God-ordained series of circumstances. I, I can take responsibility, more responsibility, for my own joy. Even in the darkest times. Why? Because all of my darkest times are ordained and set by God Almighty. And whatever He's doing is good and it will last forever. And so it gives me hope even in the darkest moments to say, I cannot figure this out. If I were God, I wouldn't do these things, but I'm not God. And I can trust that he is good and I'm not going to grow suspicious about what he's doing. I'm going to try to be joyful to say this is his gift to me at this time for some purpose that I may know on this side of heaven or I may not. But either way, I can be joyful that he's in control. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, what a great, what a great poem. What a great reminder of time and eternity. We, we sit here today on this day in June of 2014, a day after the summer solstice. And we could go back and read in, in Ecclesiastes 1 that the, the sun goes around and it, it chases itself. It's in haste to arrive back to where it started. But we're not stuck in some endless spin cycle. No, you have come and entered into time. And you are making everything beautiful in its time. And I pray particularly for my friends here who are in a difficult time. They're in a time of mourning or weeping or brokenness. That they would trust you even more in this time, knowing that all of your time, all of the time is given as a gift from a good heavenly father. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.